Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Pressbox Access. Pardon me if I'm especially excited about this episode. You see, I still have a copy of this book, Basketball, the Dream Game in Kentucky, that I practically memorized during my youth in the 1970s. It was written by Dave Kindred. That book and many of his others and his columns for newspapers and magazines opened possibilities in my own mind. And he set a standard for everyone in sports writing over the past 60 years with his deep reporting and lyrical writing. Kindred has won about every award there is to win, and yet his honors can't match his heart and warmth. Dave offered me some wisdom when I occasionally sought it from him during my own typing career. Here he offers all of us insight about Ali, Secretariat, and other greatness that he chronicled from the front lines of his career. Hey Dave, thanks for joining us on Pressbox Access. It's a real honor to have you on as our guest. Hey Dave, thanks for joining us on Pressbox Access. It's a real honor to have you on as our guest. My pleasure, Todd. You know, a year ago you were featured on 60 Minutes and now you're hanging out with me. That's kind of like the Rolling Stones playing an afternoon uh, show at a coffee house in the suburbs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would never say that. Well, I will because uh, (laughs) you're up there with Mick Jagger as far as I'm concerned. And here you are on my show. So it's a true honor. I I really do mean that. You know, I'm there with Jagger age, age wise, at least. I know that. Oh, I think you can dance like Mick. (laughs) Hey, you know, you started writing. I I, I saw this. Your parents gave you a typewriter at age 15. And the first words you typed were Stanley, Frank, usual. Stan, usual. So you must have known you wanted to be a sports writer right off the bat, except I think you had an English teacher who really kind of wanted your prodigious skills to be used in a different way, right? Well, I, I'm doing a memoir right now, and that causes me to think in ways that I've never thought before. But yes, when I typed Stanley Frank Musial, before I typed those letters, hunted and pecked those letters, um, I sat there thinking, I want to type something that I'm going to remember as the first words I ever typed. <laughs> so I think I was thinking, okay, this is going to be it. It was kind of a life decision. I didn't know it, of course, for another 40 years, but I think I did decide at that moment that's what it was going to be. And yeah, yes. English teacher, but that English teacher wanted something else. <laughs> Claire Swinford was her name. I loved her. You know, she was kind of a, a spinster type woman, gray hair in a bun. Um, glasses on a lanyard around her neck, looked like a librarian. She thought that sports writing was beneath not only me, but anybody. 
She said, well, maybe you can be a foreign correspondent. Yes. Well, you know what, though? You did get to travel the world. I think you and, proved her wrong. <laughs> you did, like, what, 75 golf well, and then I, I, like that? <laughs> You did, like, 40, more than 40 yeah, Super Bowls, more than 40 World Series, more than 40 Kentucky Derbies, eight Olympics, eight Wimbledon championships. Oh, and that guy Ali. Oh, yeah, you saw him fight 17 times. So you were a foreign correspondent. <laughs> well, actually, in, in, in 1992, Todd, Tom Callahan, my great friend in the business forever, first worked in Cincinnati with him, and then later worked in Washington. We worked at the golf act together. We went literally around the world playing golf. And Golf Digest paid some of it. Doubleday Publishing paid some of it. And we wrote a book about it. Our friend, as you and you knew him, Billy Reed, said he thought that was the greatest boondoggle mm-hmm. of all time. Callahan said, <laughs> we prefer to think of it as a calling from God. I, th- I think I saw something. You lost golf balls in 22 countries or something. So, <laughs> and, and three oceans. Well, Dave, you, you certainly uh, have established yourself as one of the most celebrated and successful sports writers and the last uh, 60 years. And when I think about your career, you know, I, I look at all these awards that have been bestowed upon you and rightfully so, uh, and including one that you won in 1991, the Red Smith Award. And I think that one is very special to you for, for many reasons, right? Well, Red Smith was my first hero. When I was a kid in Atlanta, Illinois, I read Red in the Panagraph. He was a syndicated columnist. His column appeared in the Panagraph once in a while. I always liked it, always had fun. You know, Red seemed to be having fun at places that that we all would like to go. Mm-hmm. So he became my hero. I liked the way that he wrote. I liked the sound of his words. You know, he, he wasn't really a, a nuts and bolts kind of win or lose, you know, figure Filbert kind of sports writer. He just seemed to be having fun. And I like that idea. And it's kind of been my model forever. Well, you certainly put it into great practice at the Louisville Curry Journal, at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the Washington Post, Sporting News, Golf Digest, the National. You've written 12 books. You got this celebrated blog for the last decade or so. Uh, so let's start with the time in Louisville from 1965 to 1977 um, when you were in the state of Kentucky and how that, how that impacted your career at a very young age. So you were covering Adolph Rupp, the Kentucky coach, and, you know, younger generations, Adolph Rupp might just be a name in the history books now, but when you started writing about Kentucky basketball, Rupp was, Rupp was the guy. He was the baron. He was the guy really before Wooden got his role going uh, so you're a young writer, and all of a sudden you're covering the coach in college basketball. What was it like to be around Adolph Rupp? Well, I was the beat guy. The first, the first beat job I had was 1966-67 basketball season. Mm-hmm. Texas Western beat Kentucky in 1966 in March. I became the beat writer on the Kentucky basketball team that next winter. Um, and that was Adolph Rupp's worst season ever. He was 13 and 13. Lee was his great player. Riley had a bad back, had hurt it in a water skiing accident in the summer. 
Um, Louis Dampier was a senior, but they went 13 and 13. Uh, but Rupp was, uh, Rupp was, you know, he was the one and only, you know, he was, uh, he could be gruff. He was a curmudgeon, you know, he was, uh, tough to deal with. Uh, but he was, you know, utterly charming when he wanted to be, mm. you know, but he usually wanted to be after he had won. When he lost, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't right? that happy. Right, right. Well, let's set the scene. I mean, this is, you're taking over the beat. A year after what you had already mentioned, Kentucky's loss to Texas Western, and it wasn't just any loss. It was now what we look back to as an historical moment in sports where it was all-white Kentucky losing to all-black Texas Western, the starters. And that was just a, you know, a touchstone moment in race history, not just in sports, but in our country. Um, so you're, you're dealing with Rupp a year after that. Was that still a lingering issue the next season? I don't think, Todd, I don't think it was even an issue that season. Hmm. You know, I think I've done some, a lot of research on Rupp as a racist. I don't believe that I think that was completely unfair, that charge. But at the time, Sports Illustrated, Frank DeFord, in fact, covered that game, the 65, the 65-66 game. Mm-hmm. He did not mention there was no mention of white against black. The only writer was one writer at the game who mentioned it. I think it was Bill Conlon from Philadelphia made mm-hmm. an issue out of it. Otherwise, there was no issue made of it at the time, but it did change college basketball in that more universities began recruiting more black players. Mm-hmm. That's why that, that was the main uh, impact of that game. And and so the idea that it was historic in the terms of a of a racial of racial impact was layered onto it later over the years when people looked back and said, "Oh well, is that where it started?" Okay, well it was a convenient start. Mm-hmm. And when in fact Cincinnati had won the NCAA two years before, three years before, with four black starters. Mm-hmm. Texas Western normally had four black starters, but through some confluence of injury and a decision, a whim, uh, Don Haskins started five blacks against uh, Rupp. So I, I think that it became a convenient kind of jumping off point for a racial uh, a, a racial story. Right. But I, I knew none of it. And I, I've, some of it, I attribute I attribute my ignorance to being 26 years old, suddenly covering one of the storied basketball teams of of programs of all time. I was mm-hmm. just I was probably in over my head. You know, I didn't recognize uh, the racial impact of anything. I mean, Illinois Wesleyan, Martin Luther King spoke at Illinois Wesleyan my junior year. I learned about that last year. Wow. I didn't even know it at wow. the time. It's how blank I was. Yeah, so the historical lens on the 66 championship game kind of came much later, it sounds like. Yes. You know, I, I had, uh, as I said, Sports Illustrated didn't mention a racial angle. Almost no one did. I have interviewed every one of those Kentucky players. None of them saw it as a, as a game of blacks against whites. They all saw it just as a basketball game. 
Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Texas Western people did too. I, I spoke to them later. I did a piece for Sports Illustrated on the game. And I talked to uh, David Latin, who was their big star. Talked to another one of the, I uh, don't remember his name, the guard guy that made a couple great plays in the game. They didn't see it as black against white at all. Right. Well, Rupp was, again, Rupp was the guy. He was the guy in college basketball at that time. He coached from 1930 to 1972, 876 and 190. That's a pretty good record for NCAA championships. And you were a young reporter. Were you intimidated at all by, by dealing with a guy like that? I don't think I was smart enough to be intimidated by him. Uh, to me, you know, it, 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 I, hadn't, I hadn't grown up knowing Adolph Rupp. I came from Illinois. I knew, again, I was, I was raw. I was 25 years old. Um, I just didn't know quite what to do other than cover the basketball games. Mm-hmm. I saw it as that. Rupp was uh, dominant, of course. You know, you didn't argue with Rupp. You know, as you said, you know, he won 876 games and his players lost 190. <laughs> you know, he was—he was a great, you know, he was an egotist. Uh, he was full of himself at all times. You know, he'd um, not doing a very good job, Todd, of of describing him because he was—he uh, uh, he was unique. I wrote up a lot about him. You know, by the end of my—you know—I became a columnist in '69. He was then 70 years old. I was saying it was time for him to go. You know, mm-hmm. he, and he didn't like that at all. You oh, know, it was time for he had he had reached the university's mandatory retirement age, but he had basically announced that he was not going to retire. They would have to force him to retire, and that's in the end, that's what happened. But he didn't like me. I think the famous story, Dick Finland. You know, Dick Finland worked in oh, yeah, our mutual our mutual friend uh, Dick Finland, who, uh, who passed away in 2021. There's a great story Dick used to tell me about you and him and Adolph Rupp. Let's hear it from you. <laughs> well, Adolph uh, answered his phone at home all the time. His phone number was listed in the phone book. If he didn't want to answer a call, he just would turn the phone off. Finland, who is, I loved Dick Finland. He was great. Finland called him one night and said, Coach, uh, this is Dick Finland. And Rupp says, Finland, Finland, I know two guys in Louisville. One's Finland and one's Kindred. One's a good guy and the other's a son of a bitch. Which one are you? (laughs) (laughs) Finland quickly claimed to be the good guy. So that, and that's kind of where Rupp thought of me. (laughs) <laughs> because I, I was not, you know, I was not always bowing at his, you know, I was holding him accountable for a lot of things. Kentucky, of course, is also known for, for horse racing, for thoroughbreds. And you covered more than 40 Kentucky derbies. And, but there's one particular horse and one particular moment that I, I wanted to ask you specifically about. Um, you, you covered so many great Triple Crown races, but... You were there in 1973 at the Belmont in New York when Secretariat won by an astounding 31 lengths. It's almost incomprehensible, even when you see film of it now. But for somebody who was there at the park, what do you recall about that magical performance by 
perhaps the greatest horse ever, Secretary. That was at the, I worked for a year in the Courier Journal's Washington, and that was my time there. Been here, and you'd go back to Louisville. But I was close to New York. They sent me to New York to cover the Belmont. I had missed Secretariat in the in the Derby and the Preakness, but they sent me to Belmont. Um, and the amazing thing, Todd, is that if you check the time on that race, Secretariat ran every quarter of a mile and a half race faster than the previous quarter. Wow. Which in horse racing is just like impossible. Everybody slows down. He didn't slow down. And it was clear, it was clear when he came around the last turn, he wasn't slowing down. Turcott, the rider, was uh, looking back to see where everybody was. Yeah. You know, he, yeah he was that's a great photo. Of away. It was just, yeah, the first uh, Triple Crown winner in 25 years, first one since Citation. And the thing I remember about it, excuse my language here again, but I was standing in, in the to Joe Falls, who was the comp of Detroit, as Secretariat went under the line. Falls elbowed me, patient my ass, because we had just seen what I wrote that day. It was the greatest horse race of all time. Mm-hmm. The editors back in Louisville, you know, I think trying to, well, I don't know what they were trying to do. I had called it the greatest horse race of all time. An editor in Louisville decided it was one of the greatest horse races of all time. <laughs> Why was Secretariat so special? What and and what do you treasure about being able to witness that performance? Well, the 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 great one of the great facts about Secretariat is when he died, the autopsy they remove a horse's heart. The horse, Secretary's heart was like one and a half times bigger than the normal horse's heart, which accounted for some of the stamina, some of the speed. And it reminds the great Paul of that race, I think of Chick Anderson, you know, that Secretary was coming like a, like a, uh, was it like a, like a machine coming around the track. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it was secretary at first was just beautiful with a beautiful horse, beautiful chestnut, you know, three white feet. You know, it was a beautiful horse and just in motion, you know, anything in motion tends to have a beauty of its own. And secretariat certainly was that again, to name another Ohio guy, Cy Burek. Mm -hmm. Dayton. Yeah. Mentors is an old guy uh, when I was first starting. And he, he wrote about Secretariat once and he said, the great thing about Secretariat is that he has all of his hair. He says, Secretariat and I are just alike, except he has all his hair and his entire sex life is in front of him. Well, Kentucky certainly impacted your life, uh, you know, with Adolph Rupp and Secretariat and all the great derbies that you covered. Um, but there's, there's a gentleman that we all, no, the whole world knows who's from Louisville, Kentucky. And you ended up writing about him for, you know, 50 years and covered 17 of his fights, including 10 championship bouts. Uh, and that's the great Muhammad Ali, the one and only. 
Um, do you recall the first time you met Ali? I think it was in 1966, right? Absolutely. I mean, again, I was a kid, a kid on the copy desk, but they knew I wanted to be a writer. I was in there every day looking for something to do. And one day, uh, I since have looked it up. It was one day in October of 1966. A boss comes into the office. Everybody was my boss at the time. And <laughs> yeah. says, Clay's, says, Clay's in town. Go find him. So they well, still called him Cassius Clay. At that time, yeah. it was two years after he had announced that his name was Muhammad Ali, the newspaper's style still was to call him Cassius Clay, comma, also known as Muhammad Ali, comma. Wow. Uh, so Clay's in town. Go find him. Well, I knew who they meant, but I didn't know where to go find him. And they said, well, his dad's got an uh, art gallery, quote, art gallery, unquote, uh, two blocks down Broadway. So I went down there and, and saw Cassius Clay Sr. He said, he's, he's, I, just go look, where, go look where at our house. Well, okay, where's your house? Well, it was in the west end of Louisville. Well, I didn't even know east from west. Which way is west? So it pointed <laughs> me toward the neighborhood. You know, it was where most of the uh, African-Americans in Louisville lived, west end of Louisville. Mm -hmm. So I go driving. I've got my son with me, three years old. And I'm just, just stop and ask somebody, you seen Cassius? Everybody had seen Cassius. <laughs> <laughs> he was in town to do a promotion. He'd just gone back into his old neighborhood and was walking around just seeing everybody. So Cassius, Ali, got in my car and we drove around all day wherever he wanted to go. He was carrying my son with him. So from then on, uh, I just, I always looked at him as a sweetheart. I always thought that he was, and of course that was talking about 1966. That was at the height of a time when most people in America despised him. He mm. was at 66, 67 because he was refusing the draft. He had joined the black Muslims. He was uh, probably the most reviled man in America. Uh, but I saw him as a sweetheart. You know, he, he, was, he was great with kids. He was fun to be with. And I saw him as that person from 66 through last time I saw him was somewhere in the year of 2006, 2010. Uh, he was that guy all the time. I just saw him in a little different way than other people had seen him. Uh, and so I wrote about him that day. Uh, and I've been writing about him for 50 years, six, almost 60 years since. I think, you, a, I think you said that you interviewed him more than 300 times, right? Well, yeah, and that's just a guess. I mean, it was ridiculous. I was always with him. I mean, when he was in town, I was with him. When he was in Louisville. Every fight, I'd be there for a week ahead of the fight, you know, and his hotel room was always open. You know, you, you could not avoid him. And, and, and unlike most celebrities who, you know, have this aura of don't bother me, Ali wanted to be bothered. Mm. Ali wanted people around him. If, if there wasn't anybody with him, he would go find them. He mm. would just go stand on the street corner is let's just go, let's go for a walk because he knew that pretty soon there'd be 500 people following him. So 300 is probably a, uh, uh, 
a conservative estimate of how many times that I, well, and it's not even true, Todd, to say that I interviewed him. Why do you say times. that? Why do you say I, that? I probably interviewed him twice. Most of the time, I just listened. You know, <laughs> he just start. He just start talking. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times I'd be in a hotel room with you know another ten, fifteen writers, and he'd be declaiming on some subject. And if you, he'd look at you and say, "You getting this down? You getting this down, man? This is heavy, man." You know, <laughs> if you weren't taking proper notes. He would stop until you caught up. <laughs> so not really. It was never really a dialogue with with Ali. It was mostly listening. It was endlessly entertaining, and uh, it was always fun to be around him. Yeah, he became a different person too. Yeah, he became a different person. in 1974. Uh, before then, he was the the racist, ranting black Muslim. You know, who did every. You know, we're taught to not talk about politics or religion or race. He talked about politics, religion, and race all the time. Right. 74, right. he became different because Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the, the Nation of Islam sect, died. Ali was basically freed up by that. The, the nation changed its tune, became a more reasonable um, more actually began to practice true Islam instead yeah. of the nation of Islam. Yeah. Um, so he became a different guy, became closer to the guy that I thought that he was that first time in 66. Right. Well, you really got close to him in 1973 because I read your book, Dave, one of your many books. <laughs> I read Sound and Fury, your book about Ali and, and uh, the announcer Howard Cosell and their relationship, the dual biography that you wrote. There was a moment in 1973 when, well, you set the scene. It's in Las Vegas. It's a hotel suite. What the hell happened? Well, as I said, his hotel suite was always open. He wanted people there. I was there. I, don't, I forget what fight it was, but I was there. I go up to the hotel room, the suite. There's a bedroom to the right, a bedroom to the left with a center area where everybody was gathered. I can see Ali in bed in the right-hand side, and he sees me. He waves at me, come on in, trying to do a column on his entourage. Well, he's in bed. He can't hear me. I can't hear him. So I get closer to the bed, and he raises up the sheet of the bed, corner of the sheet, and says, get in. <laughs> so I don't know what most people would do when the heavyweight champion of the world says, get in, but I did. And one of us was wearing clothes and <laughs> we pull the blankets up over our heads and I do this interview, you know, or I'm asking about his entourage. He takes my notebook and writes the names of his people working for him and how much money he's paying them each week. And we talk about whatever fight it is. We're like a couple of little kids hiding from their mother, hiding <laughs> from their parents under the, under the blanket. They're supposed to be asleep, but they're talking. <laughs> So I, I get done with the interview and I leave. Uh, I try to leave and then I realize that Ali still has my notebook. So I have to go back and get my notebook and then I leave. But yeah, I, I use that as an introduction to that book because it was a way of, of showing how close I was, literally mm -hmm. and figuratively, 
uh, to Ali at that time. You know, Dave, Ali's become such a mythical figure. Um, what do you think we get wrong about him today? Well, I think we get wrong the Parkinson's for one thing. You know, I think what we see, what we saw in Ali was what we have now identified in football players as CTE. Mm. You know, it's brain damage. You know, every fighter, you know, every fighter who in the last hundred years have been called punch drunk. That's what it is. Brain damage. And Ali, um, may have developed Parkinson's from the brain damage, but he was suffering for a long time before that. Soaring words, you know, stumbling, trembling. You know, he was uh, a a wounded person. Mm -hmm. So I think we get that wrong in the sense that we kind of absolve him from that. You know, absolve, absolve ourselves even from being entertained by this man being ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now the Olympics probably in 96, I think when he lit the torch there, I think it, it caused a revival of interest in Ali. And I think then there was a, a full reconsideration of how does a man go from being the most reviled man in America to practically a living saint. Mm-hmm. And I think he did that a lot of it because he, he soldiered on through this damage that he was suffering uh, without ever complaining about it. You know, he saw it as a, as a, test, of, uh, as a test sent to him uh, by Allah. And I think then to see a man persevere and without crying about it, without blaming anybody about it, you know, I think then they saw the basic goodness that was in Ali. And mm-hmm. that, that became very clear then to just see him uh, light that torch. Just re- I think everybody then had a, a different feel for who he was and who he had been. What was that moment like for you as a columnist in Atlanta to see that? Well, I was... I was I don't think I saw it the way everybody else saw it. I, I was fearful for him. You know, I, I didn't know it was going to happen. You know, I, I had no secret information about it. Um, but when I saw him there, my literally, Todd, I don't think I wrote this, but literally it was, my God, what is going to happen? Mm. Because he was holding the torch but he was trembling so much and I'd seen him tremble in, in other instances, but I'd never seen him standing on top of a tower holding right. fire in his hand. And I could see that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. And I could see that you know, when he got, when he got nervous, anytime he was nervous, he shook more and he was really shaking. Then I thought he was going to drop the torch. Mm. I fear he was going to drop the torch and light himself on fire and then I, you could see the fire coming up the torch onto his arm. Uh, and they were, I still get emotional about that because it was, it was, I, I was, everybody else was just in awe. But I don't think they saw the trembling. I don't think they saw that. 
may, they may have seen it on replay. They may have suddenly noticed it, but I noticed it from the start. It, it seemed like it seemed like 15 minutes before he could put that torch where it was supposed to be. It was probably 15 seconds, 20 yeah. seconds, you know. But it, it, it scared me. But everybody else, I, I saw it in a. Everybody else saw it, and I did too. Really, at bottom, I was just scared at the moment. It was just a great moment in his life. It was a great moment in in uh, in America's life. You know, mm-hmm. for this man to be forgiven, you know, by even by by people who had despised him, to to, of course, now he was defenseless. Now he was helpless. Now he was not going to hurt us anymore. So all was forgiven. But it was just a, it was a great moment that everybody, I think, who ever knew Ali, everybody who ever saw him at his best, uh, would remember, would remember forever. I certainly will. Right. And, and you did see him at his best as an athlete. I think sometimes, too, you know, we rightfully remember the fact of what he stood for, what he, what he expressed, all the right things that he stood for. But that platform came from his performance as an athlete, as a boxer. And you really kind of saw two different Ali's, right, as a fighter. You saw the young one before he was uh, banished because of his, stat- his uh, stance on the draft. And then you saw the older champ, you know, win back his uh, title. Um, so you saw, you saw, you know, the athlete of Ali develop over the years, too. Well, I've often said that the two greatest fighters of all time were Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali. So they're completely different. Ali, Cassius Clay was 6'2", 6'3", 200 pounds. You couldn't hit him. You couldn't catch him. You couldn't find him. You know, sting like a butterfly, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Absolutely perfect description of what he was then. He's the greatest athlete that I ever saw, greatest athlete that, that I will ever see, you know, it was just, he was beautiful. He was strong. He was fast. He was quick witted in, in the ring. I'm talking about as an athlete, you know, and then he, he lost when he was suspended on the whole draft conviction thing, 67 to 70. He was gone four years, the four years, the greatest four years of any athlete's life. He didn't fight. Every athlete, whether it's baseball, football, whatever, the greatest years of their life are 27 to 30, 27 to 31. They're learning it. They're mastering it. They've mastered it. He had those four years taken away from him. So he came back as a different fighter against Joe Frazier the first time. uh, It was a great fight, greatest fight that I will ever see. 1971, Frazier Garden, two undefeated champs. You know, uh, Fraser's the reigning champ. Ali's trying to win it back. You're there. Where were you sitting, by the way, for that fight? I was in the first row, ringside, just opposite Ali's corner. Third or fourth round. Third or fourth round, Ali is on the ropes, leaning backwards, and looks down at me. We make eye contact. I don't think he knows who I am. I'm just a guy sitting at ringside. But he's doing this no contest. No contest. Meanwhile, Frazier is just wailing away at him. You know, and Ali was Ali gave away 
three or four rounds early. You know, so he was not going to win a decision. He was going to have to knock him out, and he wasn't going to knock Frazier out that night. You know, it was uh, it was an, an amazing, an amazing fight, an amazing athletic contest. Um, but it was, you know, what is that? Twenty nine, fifty one years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I can still see it. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was an amazing night. Although in my mind, Todd, it's second to the Corey fight in Atlanta night. Really? That night was the most amazing, most amazing congregation of people that I had ever seen. Well, put I us mean, there. Tell, tell us all about it, Dave. Put us there. Uh, oh, it, well, it was, it was, it was wide-brimmed hats, brimmed with purple ermine. And it was yellow robes with gold trim, and it was high heels and sequins, and those were the men. <laughs> I was going to say, the women were even more beautiful. <laughs> you know, everybody showed up. It was like it was like Halloween in Harlem or something. They all were there. Everybody. Every black person in America came to Atlanta that night. Diana Ross was in Ali's uh, locker room afterwards. Uh, it was an amazing, uh, an amazing congregation of people, the, the likes of which uh, was try- you know New York couldn't even represent what had happened in Atlanta that night. It was a, uh, it was an amazing, it was an amazing thing. The King uh, Mr. T, Mr. T was working for Ali there. He was a bodyguard, right? <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, I'm not doing a very good job of describing that. I'm trying to restrain myself, but it was, <laughs> uh, it was a, just an amazing, amazing thing. Well, Ali took you all over the planet and provided you so many moments. And because you were there, you took us with you as readers. Well, it, it, it was great. It was, it was fun. You know, it was, it was work. You know, I loved the work. I loved being there. I loved telling stories. I loved telling the stories of it. Yeah, that's what I tried to do. I wanted to take, take the reader with you, make them feel, make them feel what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, uh, it was, it was fun to try to do that. And it's, it's what I had always wanted to do from the time, again, when I was 15 years old. I'd been reading lots of, you know, sports classics. And that's what I, at that time, boy, I'd like to do that. Well, you know, I got to do it. You know, it was, and, you know, it's a great satisfaction in the sense that, um, in the sense that how many people when they're 15 years old know what they want to do? And not only get to do it, but get to do things they never imagined doing. Exactly. That's part of it. And so I'm, you know, absolutely thrilled to have been able to do that. Right. You know, I'd rather have been a major league baseball player, but. Well, you went from sleeping in a bunker to traveling the world, writing about the sport of golf. And that's really a sport that's you're long associated with. Uh, I think by your own count, 75 majors, golf majors you covered. And we talked a lot of greatness here with Secretariat, Muhammad Ali, 
And you can't talk golf or sports at all without mentioning Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. And you got to see both of those players in their prime. Um, let's, let's kind of work backwards a little bit and start with Tiger. Um, what lingers in your mind about, the, about Tiger Woods and the way that you were able to chronicle him throughout his career? Obviously, he's still, still trying to, to play, you know, gutty effort at the, the Masters after a horrible car accident. Um, what is it about Woods that has made Tiger so special? Well, he was one of those, you know, great athletes, great, unique athletes. He had, you know, unbelievable hand-eye coordination or you can't play golf. That's why he can play golf now, you know, on one leg because he still has the great hands. I mean, in fact, he was quoted, I think, after the car accident as saying, um, as long as I've got my hands, I can play. And he can. You know, mm-hmm. it, the first time I saw him was 1996. At, at Augusta, he was an amateur. He played, maybe it was his first pro tournament. Anyway, 1996, he won the Masters for the first time in 97. But in 96, I followed him around and quoted several people, among them Jack Nicholas. Nicholas's great quote then was, this kid is going to win more green jackets than Arnold and I together. That he hadn't won one at that time, but it was obviously a phenom that no one could understand. I mean, mm-hmm. he was, he played that year, he played the 15th hole, which at that time measured 520 yards. He played it with a driver and a wedge. You know, In and 1996. People, wow. 1996. So he was always extraordinary. He was just, you know, from the start, he was always the best at everything. He was the best driver, the best iron player, the best wedge player, the best putter. He was the best everything. You know, in 97, he won the the Masters by 15 shots, 12 shots, I think. Won the Masters. First major. He won the U.S. Open in 2000 by 15 shots at Pebble Beach. You know, he did things that nobody else ever could do. I mean, I quoted Marco Miro once. Marco Miro was a a journeyman pro at the time, but they had become buddies because they lived near each other in Florida. I asked O'Meara, this is before, again, before Tiger had won anything. I asked O'Meara, how good is this kid? O'Meara said, he hits shots no one has ever hit before. Hmm. I said, I said, Mark, you're talking, you played with Palmer, you played with Nicholas, you played with all the good ones. What are you, are you serious? He said, dead serious. So the kid does stuff you can't imagine doing. Yeah. Uh, so he was always good. I never liked him as a person. You know, he never liked us. He never liked the media. You know, we were uh, we were out to do him harm or something. He didn't like us. Yeah, uh, I always felt like when I, I think- was around when I was around Tiger at some tournaments. I always felt like he was not one of those athletes that was going to let you in. You were going to have to view from outside. And I never, did you ever feel like you were able to get close to him as a writer? No, not at all. Never. Not once. Not once. I went to a photo shoot once with that Golf Digest. You know, the Golf Digest at the time was doing like a Tiger instruction piece every month. So that's 12, 12 instruction pieces. They would shoot them all in one day where they'd just give him change of clothes or he'd bring change of clothes 
And so I spent a day with him and never got any kind of feel that he was a human being. Mm. You know, he was, uh, he was a machine. You know, they wanted him, they wanted him to take off his shirt, you know, because obviously he had a, a great body. They wanted to show how much to, to show the body. Mm-hmm. And he he refused to do it. Not only refused to do it, but refused to do it in a nasty way. Um, so, I, uh, and it, but he never cared for us because it was kind of the vanguard of professional athletes today. You know, we and I'm talking about journalists as newspaper people didn't matter. You know, we no longer mattered to any of them. You know, Palmer, Nicholas, those people have grown up in a different time when newspapers seemed to be important. But when newspapers no longer mattered, none of the athletes needed us. Very few of them were were kind to us. Very few of them even thought that we were doing work that was that was necessary. Okay, so Nicholas set the standard on the golf course for Tiger to chase. What set Jack apart from his peers at the time? Well, Jack was a, a phenomenon in his own right at the time, you know, from the time he was a kid. What he won the Ohio State Won the Ohio State Amateur when he was 13, maybe. So he was a phenomenon from the beginning. He hit it farther than everybody. You know, he was a great competitor. You know, what, like he never missed a putt that he needed to make. You know, and and he became, he was one of the first, um, I, well, I'm not sure how to say this, a Palmer Arnold Palmer invented golf on TV. You know, Nicholas came along and and profited from that exposure. You know, and then their kind of rivalry that didn't was not a rivalry that lasted very long because Jack, you know, just ran over him through the seventies. But it, he was just uh, uh, seemed to be the great. You know, his his model, his role model was Bobby Jones. You know, Bobby Jones is is golf's saint, Saint mm-hmm. Bobby Jones. You know, and Nicholas wanted to be that guy, so his behavior was modeled after Jones, and represented all the best in golf. So whenever you saw Nicholas, you were seeing what you thought of as not only the best player, but the best of what golf meant as a sport. Right. Right. Okay. You saw Nicholas. And you saw Woods, both of them, in their prime. You've got one round of golf. They're playing each other. Who are you taking? Well, you have, you have to take Tiger. I mean, with Tiger at his best was just beyond reach. Tiger at his best, I think Jack would say that. You know, Jack certainly played at a, at a higher level longer. You know, Jack, was, Jack didn't have the personal problems, let's call them, that Tiger had, that Tiger finally fell victim to, and who knows how long that had been going on before, but the Tiger in 2000, the 2000 and the Tiger slam where he won the four in a row, you Mm -hmm. know, starting with the U.S. Open and ending with the next year's Masters, uh, you can't be better than what Tiger was then. I mean, he won at Pebble Beach, one of the hardest golf courses in the world, playing the U.S. Open, one of the hardest tournaments in the world, and he won by 15 shots. I know, it's <laughs> by crazy. 15 shots. 
uh, I was there, and the, the the 14th hole was a par five dog leg right. Tiger had about a 230-yard second shot. And after the, after the round, he hit it into a trap at the left front edge of the green, got it up and down for a birdie. After the round, we asked him, what were you thinking on that 230-yard second shot to 14? He says, well, if I hit it, I forget what he hit. He says, but if I hit the three wood, it's going to go, it's going to go into that trap and roll up and out of the trap. If I hit the five wood, it's going to go into that trap. It's going to roll up and it'll come back and stop where I want it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wait a minute. He's talking about, he's worried about the last three feet of a 230 yard shot. And he thinks he can control that. Well, that's what he did. So he did things like that all the time. And, and as good as Jack was, Jack was the best of his time. I think even Jack would say, you know, at our best, you know, Tiger is the better player. Right. Yeah. We can only wonder what, what would have been for Tiger if, um, you know, all the problems didn't rise up and, and, and well, um, maybe, you know, yeah, we get into a psychological puzzle there, you know, did the life he led ruin him or did the life he led make him who he was to begin with? Would he have won the first 10 if he had been a different person or did living that life make it possible for him to win the first 10, you know, the life of, you know, almost, uh, uh, a totally obsessed with whatever he was obsessed with. Right. That's the interesting thing about genius, right? It, you know, that scorched earth mentality, you know, that's. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, his, you know, I think, I think what Tiger is doing with his son, Charlie now is, uh, is kind of the mirror image of what his father Earl had done with Tiger. I think Tiger is trying to be, a good father. Earl right. was just trying to create a genius. So you're seeing more of a, like a softer Tiger Woods now when you see him with his son, for example. I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, when he won in 2019 at Augusta, he was a, a, a different guy than when he had gone away. You know, and I think certainly now, you know, you get to be older, you get to be wiser. You hope you know, he's 46, you know, he's not going to be the same person at 46. You were at 26. You know, so I think he's, you know, there's intimations of mortality. Certainly he has had enough of those by now that, right. that uh, he no longer is the, you know, step on your throat guy that he right. had been. Remember that photo shoot I was talking about, one of us had said to him that, uh, quoted Ernie Els as saying that, uh, well, the way Tiger's playing, you know, I don't know if anybody can beat him. And Tiger just starts smiling and says, he shouldn't have said that hmm. because it was like, he's, he's, he's showing his weakness. Els was showing his weakness by admitting that no one could beat tiger. And that's what tiger was. I don't know if it's, if he's still that doesn't, it still doesn't have that killer instinct. I doubt because he doesn't have the ability to just uh, to, to put his foot on people's neck now. Right. So everything changes. 
and he's you know you hope that it changes for the best. And a, right. you know, a lot of people go out, a lot of people go out whining and whimpering and crying, and you hope they go out in a gentler way. And I think Tiger is doing that. Yeah, good for him, right? You know, I mean, you yeah. know, a lot full lived. You know, we're all. We should allow everybody to to evolve and and find out what it is about life that suits them best for whatever they do. And I think you're starting to see that with Tiger. You know, even the stoic way he was marching around Augusta recently with his limp, but also like you mentioned, you know, the time he's spending with his son. Um, that's that's so important, right? I I think there's a moment in Masters history that. Jack Nicholas parted some words to you about family, right? I think so. First of all, you—how many masters did you cover? I went to uh, fifty-three, I think. Fifty-three masters. Sixty-seven was, yeah. But you only missed one, right? I only missed one, and it happened to be the one that Jack Nicholas won in nineteen eighty-six. You know, because my <laughs> it just son so happened to be the made the mistake. Masters. <laughs> my son made the mistake of getting married on. Master Sunday, you know, at the time he, of course, he, my son knew nothing about it, but when he announced that he was getting married, I think it was like April 13th, something like that. I said, Oh no, I'll I'll miss the masters. Well, okay. I missed the masters. The wedding, the wedding is on a Sunday. I come into the house after the wedding. I turn on the TV. It was eight o'clock. I remember turn on the TV. The first thing I heard was a little news bulletin on the TV that says Jack Nicholas today shot a 65. And I went, Oh no, <laughs> I said, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So I missed that. And then later I won an award at Augusta and I made a speech at the golf writers dinner. And I told that story and, um, and a couple of weeks later I got a letter from Jack you know, saying that that I had made the right decision, that family comes first. But if you need to know anything about the 1986 Masters, I remember a lot of it. <laughs> um, so I, I've saved that letter over the years because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And I've got two letters in my life from professional athletes. One was Nicholas and the other was Ben Hogan. Hmm. You know, so, uh, and Hogan wrote me a letter because I had, uh, on 1987, the 20th anniversary of my going to Augusta, I wrote about having seen Hogan that first year and Hogan wrote me a letter thanking me for the, for the memories. So that was the year that he shot on Saturday, 36, 30, 66, and was three shots out of the lead at age 55. Uh, shot 77 the next day to finish 10th, but it was still one of my great memories in golf and in, in my career, actually. Well, two good letters to have, right? <laughs> yes. And Jack was right. You know, family does come first and should come first. And I'm going to wrap this up by talking a little bit about how writing and family coexist for you and what they've done for, for you um, in the past decade. I know You've had a lot of hardship uh, in the last decade. I know the writing community has has hurt for you. Um, you know, your your wife Cheryl, wife of nearly sixty years, died in June of twenty twenty one, and in the previous five years to that, she um, she was non responsive and unable to communicate because of a stroke. And prior to that, a year prior to that, her stroke, 
you know, you lost your mother at age 96 and, and you lost your grandson, Jared, at age 25. So you've had to endure the, the hardships of life. And yet through it all, you've kept writing. And um, I mentioned 60 Minutes and what they featured last year was how you were writing about the Lady Potters, the Morton High School women's basketball team in Morton, Illinois. And you started doing that in 2010. And even after your wife had her stroke, um, you continued to write. And has the idea of writing changed for you um, throughout the, the difficulties that you've had to face in the last decade? Well, it's been, I thank you for all that. Uh, it's been, it's kind of been my way of dealing with it. It's, it's, a, it's therapeutic in a way life-affirming in a way, certainly being around the girls' basketball team has been life-affirming in the sense that you're seeing teenage athletes playing a kid's game for fun. You know, it's no longer, I write about it a little differently. I write about it a lot differently than I ever wrote about Muhammad Ali or the Washington Redskins or anything because it's not professional sports. I just try to find something to write about each time. It created for me a community of people that I knew here. You know, it's it's been it's been it's been fun. I mean, I like basketball to begin with. You know, it's the little gyms where I grew up in Central Illinois. It's high school basketball. There's no transfer portal. There are no agents. There's no spectacles at halftime. You know, it's just kids playing a game. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what we all got into it for. Most sports writers were kids playing games, you know. Not not all of us, but a lot of us, you know. And we've all played catch with our dad or mom. We've all, you know, had a sister, daughter, girlfriend, cheerleaders. You know, it's a life that we grew up in, and that's kind of where I am. You know, I don't need to do. Uh, I've done, I've been everywhere. I've done everything I ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is, and this has been fun. been doing it for 11 years now, probably written 500,000 words about a girls basketball team. At one point I did, Todd, at one point, of course, I did negotiate for some pay because I told the, the webmaster who was the father of one of the players who was doing a website that I was writing for. I said, look, Dave, you know, I'm a professional sports writer. I should be getting something for doing this. So I've said that he appraised my talent, my experience, and my good looks and said, how about a box of milk duds every game? <laughs> so that's what I've done. I've been writing for 11 years for milk duds uh, and had a great time doing it. My wife was with me for the first five years of it. And... Right. Uh, the, the girls have been to the nursing home to see her. The team has come there four or five times. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been a, just a great experience for me that, you know, you don't, you know, I was done. I mean, I was going to keep writing. I was going to find some way to write, write mm-hmm. a novel, do something. Uh, but this, the, the girls thing, I went to a game, uh, a friend's daughter played. I went to a game and I realized that I could not sit there without wanting to write something about it. So I went to the webmaster. I saw him at the game and said, I'd like to write something for you. Uh, he didn't know who I was. In fact, he was quoted later as saying, 
this disheveled old man came out of the stands and asked me if he could write for us. <laughs> well, that was me. Yeah, okay. And so I started writing, and uh, and I've haven't stopped. I've been to over 350 girls high school basketball games in the last 11 years. The team was always decent, but then my fifth year, they won a state championship, 3A, four four classes in girls basketball. They're mm-hmm. the 3A class, uh, and they've since have won three more state championships. So I hooked on to a good thing, and it was fun. And it's been fun, and I will do it again this year. Well, you found your community uh, at a time that, you know, we all need community. We need it always throughout our life. And, and I'm so glad that you found it through, through what you have always done so well, and that's writing. And I, and I want to thank you. I recently read your 2021 memoir, Leave Out the Tragic Parts, about your grandson's struggle with addiction and, and how substance abuse cost him his life at age 25. And I was just blown away, um, not, not just by the quality of the writing, which I expected, but just your honesty and the wisdom that came forth. Please, everybody, read Dave's latest book and look up the blog on uh, Lady Potters and look up anything that Dave has written over the years. It's, it's so fantastic. So, well, you thank know. you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for all of that. I, I appreciate it. You know, it's, I mean, I told, uh, anyway, thank you. Thank you for all of that. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for your career, but, but also thank you for taking the time to, to join us on Press Box Access. Uh, it's been a real, real treasure. I'm always going to remember this hour with you, Dave. Well, I've listened to several of them. You do a great job. I appreciate you having me on. And let's do it again next year. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform, or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.